Please turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. I assume that among those students that, uh, Gary, welcome back earlier, we have some freshmen coming back. It's a great thing to be starting your second semester, isn't it? Got school figured out, right? One four zero in the bank. But you remember, it wasn't that long ago when, when uh, life was really uncertain, pretty disorienting the first time you step onto campus. It's huge. It's like an entire city, 50,000 people, can't find your classroom, right? You resist the urge as long as you can not to pull out your map. Finally, you break down, pull out your map. Everybody knows you're a freshman. <laughs> then you walk into that first chemistry class. There's 400 students in there. You're like, oh my gosh, this is bigger than my entire school. Go to the bookstore, can't find your books. Or they're all sold out, driving around town, can't find what you need. Can't figure out how to pull tickets for the game. Everything's new. Everything is disorienting. Then you get a semester down, and man, you got it now, right? From here on, schools, it's just really, it's easy. Because you know what you're doing. We have any, any seniors who are about to graduate with us? All right. Big whoop for you. <laughs> but you've got it nailed, right? It's all... It's all good. Final lap, it's a great place to be. But you know what? You're about to feel like a freshman again. You'll go out, you'll start that first job. You don't even know how to work the copier. What do they do for you first? They put you through orientation because you are disoriented. You don't know how to do anything. You don't know how to fill out your time card. You've got to do a W-2 form. You're, you're entering it. You've got a new apartment, new place to live, new city, new friends. Everything's new. And then hopefully shortly after that, you, you get married. <laughs> That's disorienting. All right? <laughs> got to get in a new groove, a new rhythm, and then you have kids, and then you're disoriented forever. <laughs> right? Life, that's life, right? We, we think we've got it nailed, and then a new set of circumstances faces us, and, and we have to start all over, putting the pieces back together, figuring out how do we make life work? How do we bring order and structure and purpose and meaning back to life? Acts chapter 1, I think, is a great illustration of that feeling. The disciples are, are thoroughly disoriented in life. They have chosen to follow Jesus. They've been following him for about three and a half years, and they've kind of got life figured out. Certainly, Jesus throws them a lot of curveballs, right? There's walking on water periodically and feeding 5,000, raising the dead, but they've kind of come to expect those unexpected things, and so they know what life is like with him. They have their expectations set, and then he died. And everything they were hoping and dreaming for was crushed. It was shattered. And they're depressed. And then three days later, they hear that he is risen. And they actually get to see him. And they touch him. And it says, some believe and some are still doubtful after touching him. So he spends 40 days kind of putting life back together for them. Reorienting them so they understand who they are and what they've been called to do. I want you to read with me in Acts chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, uh, that's the book of Luke, the gospel of Luke, until the day when he was taken up to heaven after he had, by the Holy Spirit, given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom." Jesus talked to them for 40 days about the kingdom. Now, 
there are certain words when we hear them, they just immediately have connotations, right? There's just a, a whole list of ideas that, that come with a, a single word. Around here, we hear the word Heisman, what do we think? Oh, we think Johnny Manziel, right? Or John David Crow. I, I don't even know who won the Heisman this year because it doesn't matter, right? It wasn't an Aggie, so who cares, <laughs> right? We hear Heisman, we think Johnny or John David Crow. That, that's, that's what we think of. When they hear kingdom, what do they think? Well, there's a whole set of connotations that come with that single word for them. Read with me chapter 1 and verse 6. It says, so when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? I want to unpack that a little bit for us. They ask him, are you restoring? In other words, there's something that Israel had before that they want back. And what is it? It's kingdom, right? They, They had something before. They had a political and territorial sovereignty under David and then even larger under Solomon. And they lost it. And they want it back. And they're expecting to get it back. Are you restoring what we had before? That is the kingdom, political, territorial sovereignty. Under David and then later under Solomon, they had control over all of their land. And there were even lands around them who brought tribute to them. They were a powerful kingdom. They were a safe kingdom, secure from their enemies. They were a prosperous kingdom. There was Uh, abundance coming from the land, abundance coming into the land from taxation of other peoples. It's a great time. Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel? They're thinking something that's, that's very narrow. It's national. They are not thinking Great Commission. They're not yet. They're not thinking all nations getting the gospel of a death, dead, buried, and risen Messiah. They're, not, they're, they're, they're thinking about a kingdom, political territorial sovereignty, coming back to our nation, to Israel. And are you going to do it now? You've been talking to us for 40 days about the kingdom, so it must be now, right, Jesus? Those are their expectations. Where did those expectations come from? And were they accurate? Well, I want you to go all the way back with me to the book of Ezekiel, chapter 37, verse 25. It says, They will live on the land that I gave to Jacob, my servant, in which your fathers lived. And they will live on it, they and their sons and their sons' sons, forever. And David, my servant, will be their prince forever. When he says, they will live on the land, who's he talking about? Well, Ezekiel is talking about the exiles. And when Ezekiel wrote, many of the people had been taken off of the land. More would be taken off the land. They were living in exile because they had been in disobedience to God, right? They had disobeyed the law, particularly they had followed the nations around them and they had entered into idolatry. They had failed to keep the Sabbath, really trusting in God to provide for them. Instead, they were following after the false gods and trusting in them. And so God had taken them and removed them from the land. And God, knowing all of their sins, speaks to those who are in exile and says, you will come back. You're going to come back and you're going to live on the land again. And you will have that sovereignty over the land. In fact, David will be a prince and a son of David. One of his descendants will be king over the land. And you will once again have have safety and security from your enemies and you will have prosperity in the land and you will have righteousness and you will follow me with a whole heart. If you read Ezekiel and Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel and Zechariah, you see promise after promise after promise of the kingdom. 
God will restore you. In fact, you know, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, some of the people did come back and they rebuilt the city walls and they rebuilt the temple, but it was really a shadow of the, the former glory. Instead, they were living under Persian domination and they were poor and they were struggling. They did not have independence. Instead, they were still longing for the kingdom. And so God spoke to them again in the book of Malachi. He said at the end of Malachi, last prophetic word that God spoke in the Old Testament, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. That is the day when God once again intervenes in human history on behalf of Israel and destroys Israel's enemies and establishes his kingdom on earth through the son of David. But before that happens, Elijah's going to come again and he's going to prepare the way. And after God spoke this prophetic word, there was 400 years of silence. And they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting. And in fact, during that 400 years of silence, there were messiahs that popped up all over the place, right? That is, people who said, I'm the anointed one. I'm the one who's going to lead us back into the kingdom of God. And they would rise up and fail and rise up and fail, but the people were anticipating it. And then John the Baptist showed up on the scene, and he said, there's one coming. He's coming. That's not me. In fact, I'm not even really worthy to stoop down and tie the sandal on his foot. I can't take his sandals on or off. I really can't even touch his feet. But he is coming. I'm the one who's coming to prepare his way, just as Malachi said. And Jesus would affirm of John. He said, John, John is Elijah, if you care to accept it. Preparing the way for the kingdom. Behold, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here we go. In fact, just a a few days before Jesus was crucified, he would come into Jerusalem and he would be riding on a colt in fulfillment of the prophecy in the book of Jeremiah. And the people would go before him, they would throw their cloaks on the ground and they would get palm trees, which was a symbol of Jewish nationalism. It's it's, It's waving the Jewish flag and they would say, Hosanna, that is, Lord, save us. This is the son of David. And Jesus would accept their praise So what are the disciples thinking? They're thinking kingdom. And whenever they wrestled and struggled with what that might look like, they would ask Jesus, Jesus, you know, we've left everything. What is our place in your coming kingdom? And he made them promises. Luke chapter 22, just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging 12 tribes of Israel. So when Jesus rises from the dead, and for 40 days he talks to them about the kingdom, what are they thinking? They are thinking, game on. All of our hopes and dreams and expectations were crushed when he died, but now he's back and he's talking to the kingdom. So it is time for us to raise an army, drive the Romans out, and establish the kingdom of God on earth. Those were their expectations. Reasonable expectations based upon what they had heard from childhood and what they had heard from Jesus. And Jesus says to them, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on just a minute. Hold on just a minute. Your your expectations are, are not exactly in line. I want you to wait and listen. Read with me chapter 1, verse 4. Gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait For what the Father had promised, which he said you heard from me, for John baptized with water, 
but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, I will confess that I don't, I don't like to wait at all. That's just, I don't like, it's not one of my great strengths. You know, I'll get up in the morning and have my first cup of coffee. Once the coffee kicks in, I kind of, I kind of shift modes. Tristy calls it business mode. You know, she'll may need to talk to me about something that's going on with school, with the kids, whatever. And she'll look, look at me and she'll go, you just shifted into business mode, didn't you? Yeah, I got goals for the day and I'm just, you know, I just turned the corner and here we go. And I'm ready at that moment to be out the door in the office doing business. Let's go. You know, I I just, I'm not patient. I'm, uh, when I buy gifts, uh, I, I can't wait for the actual event. As soon as I get the gift, I give the gift, right? I ordered Tristy's Christmas present on November 18th. And it was awesome. I have Amazon Prime, so I don't have to wait, All right? I can just, I order it, free shipping. Two days later, the package came. UPS knocked. I opened the door. There it was. It was already wrapped. It was in this wonderful brown box with brown tape. And I turned around and I gave it to her. November 20th, she had her Christmas gift. I don't like to wait. I don't, you know, and you, you say, how, how unromantic with the gift giving, all that. I don't know anybody who says, I love to have my patience tested, (laughs) right? None of us really love waiting. I certainly don't. But when they heard that they had to wait for the Spirit, that probably didn't throw them off because the Spirit was the sign of the coming age. It probably just reinforced their expectation that the kingdom is about to come. Because the Spirit is the sign of the coming age. Jesus said to them, remember you heard about this from my Father. Where? Joel chapter 2. Will come about after this, I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind. I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. My Spirit comes and stirs things up. Jesus says, you heard about this from me as well. Jesus spoke to them throughout his ministry about the coming of the Spirit. Particularly at the end of John. When the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify about me, and you will testify also because you've been with me from the beginning. You will receive the Spirit. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you in the form of the Spirit of God, the person of the Spirit. I will send the Spirit, the sign of the coming age. And so they probably weren't really thrown off. They heard this, that great kingdom's coming, sign of the kingdom's coming, the power of the Spirit is coming. But then Jesus says something more. Well, it's not just that you have to wait for the promised power of the Spirit. You you need to wait for the kingdom itself. It's not coming right now. Read with me chapter 1 and verse 6. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time that you are restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, none of your business. (laughs) It's not for you to know the times or the epics which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus doesn't say to them, the kingdom's never coming. In fact, he affirms that the kingdom will come. He says, it's not for you to know the exact outworking of when God will move his kingdom program forward. In fact, before Jesus' death and resurrection, Jesus said, I don't even know. The Father is holding those cards very close to his chest. He doesn't say it won't come. And in fact, you'll see later in Peter's writings, in John's writings, in the book of Revelation, in Paul's writings, that all of God's promises to Israel will come true. Romans chapter 11, for example. But Paul will inform us later, something the disciples really hadn't grasped yet, but he will tell us it's it's a mystery. 
There is a form of the kingdom, and Jesus did preach about it in Matthew chapter 13, but it's, it's a mystery. It's not what you were expecting. Ephesians chapter 3. When you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit, that is, the church. Jews and Gentiles in one new body on equal footing, not owning any territory, but men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation, not primarily Jewish, but actually primarily Gentile. This new mystery form of the kingdom is not what you had expected. It's not a political kingdom. It's not a territorial kingdom. It's a mystery. And Jesus says to them at this point in time, I hate to tell you, but you're not getting what you expect right now. Now, I, you know, I confess I don't like to wait, but also I don't like surprises. A lot of times I'd rather pick out my own gift, right? I know exactly what I want. Let me just go get it. Kids love to surprise us, but I prefer to know everything ahead of time. And Jesus says, no, it's not for you to know the times or the epics, the seasons, God's timing of his program. Not saying that it won't happen, but that's not your business right now. And the disciples had to think to themselves, well, actually, that's exactly our business. That's what we signed up for. We signed up for the kingdom. So why wouldn't you tell us when and where and why and how? Jesus says, that's not for you to know. Instead, you're going to wait. You know, this uh, semester, many of you, if not all of you, will be challenged to wait. Many of you, if not all of you, will face new circumstances that you had not anticipated. They're going to turn things upside down, and it's going to be very disorienting. And how will you respond? God, I thought I would love accounting. (laughs) I hate it. God, I thought I'd graduate on time. I raised my hand on Sunday morning on January 12th and said I was graduating. I thought I'd get a job as soon as I graduated. I thought I'd be engaged before I graduated. I thought I'd keep this job that I love. I thought my kids would love their new school. I thought our house would sell. I thought I'd be able to retire, but the stock market tanked again. I, I had all of these expectations. And how, do, how do we respond? You know, Jesus doesn't give the disciples what they want when they want A lot of times God doesn't give us what we want exactly when we want it. It's been said one of God's primary tools for sanctification is waiting. Waiting. What he does for them, though, is he reminds them who they are and based upon who they are, what they've been called to do. And so he says, while you wait, this is what you're called to do. This is what you're called to do. I want you to read with me again Acts chapter 1. And verse 1. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach, until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. Chosen. You know, most of the time in the Gospels, the followers of Jesus are called disciples, right? Which means literally it's a follower or a learner. Jesus individually, personally came to them and said, Follow me. And they followed him. And when they followed, they became disciples, learners, learning from Jesus, following Jesus, watching Jesus' life. 
But here Jesus emphasizes a new identity for them, and that is apostle. Apostle means literally one who is sent. And there was a select group that were commissioned to establish the foundation for the church and build this new mystery form of the kingdom, right? But there's a principle of being sent that applies to absolutely every believer in Jesus Christ. A sent one. A sent one. You and I are in the world, but we're not of the world. But we stay in this world because God has sent us into this world to have an impact on this world because God is ascending God. That's what he does. He sent his only son to die for our sins. God sends and he has sent you. And he has sent me. Read with me Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Let's start in verse 7 again. He said to them, It is not for you to know the times of the epics, which the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Jesus says to them, While you wait, it's not your job to build a kingdom. While you wait, it's not your job even to make uh, converts, while you wait, it is your job just to bear witness. What you've seen, what you've heard, and what you know, just tell people about it. Do that. Just be a witness. You know, that's what God's people have been always called to do. Let me illustrate this for you from the Old Testament book of Isaiah. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord. And my servant whom I have chosen, I even I am the Lord, and there is no Savior besides me. So you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. You're not God, I'm God. So I get to choose when and where and why and how. An apostle, that phrase was often actually applied in secular literature to an emissary or an ambassador who didn't take his own message, who didn't even choose where he wanted to go, but he took the message of another when, where, and why another had chosen. God says to his people, I'm God, and you're my witnesses. You have meaning, you have significance in this life because you are my ambassadors. You are my sent ones. So go. Go. Now, people's last words are uh, often very telling. They tell what's really most important, most critical to that person. Uh, Right before Christmas, I stumbled upon the last words of Buddha. I found this very interesting. Buddha's last words, he said, Work hard to gain your own salvation. These are his last words that he, as he was meeting with his disciples, his learners, his followers, he said to them, here's the essence of my teaching. Work hard to gain your salvation. Jesus' last words on the cross were these. It is finished. Very different message, isn't it? It is finished. It is finished. You don't don't need to keep striving and struggling. You don't need to try to Continue to earn your way back to God because Jesus said, it is finished. I have fully and finally and completely paid the penalty for your sins. Just believe. And when you believe, you enter into my finished work. You have life that lasts forever. It is finished. And then Jesus breathed his last. He went into the grave. Three days later, he was raised. And then he had another set of final words. Before he departed off the earth, And he gathered his disciples and he says, here's your job. Go be my witnesses. Don't worry about when the kingdom is coming. Don't worry about when all things will be set right. When you finally get all of life in order and you think everything is managed just how it needs to be managed, stop worrying about that because I'll do that when I choose to do that. But while you are waiting and struggling and even suffering, be my witnesses. 
Be my witnesses. To read verse 8 again. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. You will be my witnesses. Where? Everywhere. Jesus said in another way in Matthew chapter 28, he said, go and as you're going, make disciples of all nations. All nations. What does that mean? That means your roommate, your neighbor. You're not responsible to convert them. You're responsible to live like Jesus in front of them and tell them the words of the gospel, the hope of the gospel. Bear witness. And when you're around neighbors or friends or family members, that is your Jerusalem, live differently for Jesus. Talk about Jesus. And when you encounter someone who's younger than you in the faith, build them up so they can be a follower of Jesus, so they can love Jesus with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and then they can go out and bear witness of all that they've seen and heard and experienced in Jesus. Pay attention to those who are near you in your Jerusalem. When you see a person, there is nothing more important about them than do they know Jesus or do they not know Jesus. And pay attention to those who are far. Because you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, he cares about men and women from every tribe, tongue, and people, and nation. And so we need to be involved, whether it is going or giving our money or praying for those who do go. We need to be concerned about what God is concerned about because he doesn't love just America, right? He loves men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And so Jesus says to them, you will be my witnesses, first in Jerusalem, but then in Judea and Samaria, which is cross-cultural, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. And he says this to his 11 followers and then maybe another 100 people, this tiny group of people. And he says, you will be called upon to take the glorious gospel of eternal life through Jesus Christ to the whole world. How did they feel? They probably felt like, wow, what a privilege to be chosen. But is Jesus crazy? <laughs> Does he see how many people are sitting in this room? That's why he makes a promise. But you'll receive power. Literally, the, the Greek word is dunamis, from which we get dynamite. It's the power that raised Jesus from the dead. He said, I'm going to empower you. And what we see in the book of Acts just a few days later is these men who had run away, not wanting to identify with Jesus for fear, now are standing up in the middle of the marketplace preaching the gospel. Why? The power of the Spirit transformed their lives. And if you look at the history of the early church, their primary understanding of the Spirit was the Spirit was the source of courage and power. So that when they were sitting at the dining table at Christmas, they were not afraid to speak about Jesus, right? But they were bold. And they continued, they said, hey, pray for me. Paul would say, pray for me that I would be bold in the gospel. Pray that the Spirit would empower me. But sometimes it is easier to pray for that person who's off there in a far off place sharing the gospel or send my money to that person, but what about the person who's near? But nothing is more important about that person. Do they know Jesus Christ? Because if they don't, they'll have eternity separate from him. And it's my prayer that God would break our hearts for the lost and fill us with the power of his spirit so we'd have courage to speak truth 
in this community for Jesus Christ. How do we apply this message? Let me give you a couple of ideas. Uh, Some of you are probably this morning uh, already walked in feeling kind of disoriented. Interestingly, I had two conversations, significant conversations on the way in, and each person talked about how their life was really turned upside down right now. (laughs) I thought, well, there you go. God knows, right? He plans things out. Some of you are walking in feeling that. Uh, Some of you are about to get disoriented. It's a promise. And it's going to happen. That's how, how life works. But all of us are at the beginning of a year. And I want us to literally take time this week and to think about who we are and what we've been called to. See, it's so easy at the beginning of the year. We make 100 new commitments or our kids make 100 new commitments for us. We get committed to so many things and we get distracted from, from the one or two things that really are most critical. You know, Jesus did so much in three and a half years because he said no to a lot of things and said yes to his father's business. Okay, so for us, going deep, deep, deep in our relationship with God and deep in our relationships with other believers and deep into our relationship with those who don't know Jesus Christ as we courageously reach out for him. So let me summarize like this. We are called to the kingdom. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, all things will be set right for you someday. You will live with Jesus forever. No longer be any tears or sorrow or pain or chaos or disorientation. And that's forever. But it's not now. And so don't expect it. Right now we're challenged to wait for that. And as we wait, we're chosen to be sent. God has chosen us to be sent out into these lives to transform them for Jesus Christ. So this week, I want you to take some time, literally sit down and think about your commitments of your time and your emotional and relational energy, everything that you do and your money in terms of who you are and what God has called you to do and to be. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have not left us in the dark about the source of eternal life that it's through your son, Jesus Christ. And I thank you, Father, that you have not left us to flounder, to struggle to figure out meaning and purpose in life. But I pray, Father, we would not be distracted by all of the, the frustrations and uncertainty that we face in life, but rather we would see that in the midst of that, we can be those who are sent, have been called by you to go out and have an influence, to live differently for Jesus. I pray, Father, you'd fill us with your spirit. It's in Christ's powerful and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.